Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Babylon Project, our last best hope for trash. This is a rewatch podcast for Babylon 5 featuring two veterans of the show and for this week, two newbies. Um, I'm your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along are my co-hosts, Jude and Anna, as well as welcoming to the show, Josie. Hello, I'm Josie. I play Minx on the Magpies podcast, an actual play Blades in the Dark podcast with all queer women. The reason I have... um, co-opted forced um what's the, what's uh impressed josie uh into recording with us tonight is because uh she is also a newbie to the show how did you get into b5 well i i, I recently moved into a new house with a bunch of nerd friends so we've been watching a bunch of old sci-fi shows i was already a trekkie that sort of thing um, but we kind of ran out of stuff to watch. And I was like, you know what? I've never seen Babylon 5. And when I was younger, it was one of those things where people would really obsess over it. So it was like, okay, I'll stay away from it. But now that I've seen it, I really lo- like it and treasure it. And I literally just started watching it a couple months ago. Um, so like y'all were only a couple episodes in and I just finished it this week. So I was kind of like, watching with the podcast for a little bit there nice so it just kind of synced up there there was a a point a couple weeks ago where like you were you dm me it's like i finished season two and i was like cool excellent i'm like more people beyond these two nerds who i could talk about it with (laughs) (laughs) and and i was like i need to talk about the gay episode (laughs) we already we already recorded it damn it than this one. <laughs> I can get you King Arthur. <laughs> yep. I have a bit uh, for today, which, um, Jude, what is your name? What is my name? I think my name is the patron saint of lost causes. Okay. What is your quest? Uh, to disappoint people. What is the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow? Uh... Four. Oh, off you go. <laughs> I have no uh, idea. What is your name? I I am I am Anna. What is your quest? Um to to accumulate all of the shiny colored yarn. And what is your favorite color? Turquoise. Oh, off you go. There we go. We we could we could cut that out, but I needed to like I, I remember I was like, I had a bit for this. Oh right, it was the dumb holy grail bit. Yeah. <laughs> Took me a second. I got there. Yeah. I got there. It's been a hot minute since I watched yeah. Holy Grail. It's probably been like a decade for me. Yeah. For for a second, I thought that you were asking like what our Centauri names were. Like Abraham Linconey. <laughs> I mean, if Dang. you asked me, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> All right. Um, From the, what you might guess about our bits today and we are covering two episodes from season three episodes 12 and 13 the first one of these is uh sick transit veer the second of those 
being a late delivery of Avalon. Um, I do not remember who wrote the who who did the summaries for these. Um, I did. I did. Sick Transit Veer. All right, then Anna, take us away. All right. So, um, Sick Transit Veer, episode twelve of season three, written by JMS and directed by Jesus Trevino. So we open on CNC with people bustling about conducting station business. Ivanova walks in, nude to cover her shift. Of course, everyone's heads turn, and she asks what they're all staring at before looking down, screaming in horror, and waking up. We've all been there, Susan. (laughs) Next, we cut to Veer. He's on Centauri Prime and fondling the Emperor's throne uh, in the most ridiculous set I think we've ever seen on this show. Yeah, hard agree. Um, They just put some curtains in a warehouse. I mean, we've seen this throne room before. Yeah, yeah. Um, but isn't it different from the actual throne room that that we see? I don't think later? they've ever decorated shush, it the same you. in any of the I times mean, new, it appears. Hey, new emperor. Maybe, maybe, maybe Cartagia is like a minimalist. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, anyway, uh, another courtier comes to talk to Veer, um, saying that he should follow his own judgment going forward rather than letting Londo edit his reports. He also explains that Veer's passage back to Mimbar is booked with a stopover at B5, um, and also tells a joke. What's more dangerous than a room full of angry Narns? One angry Narn with the key! Veer pretends to be amused and leaves, and we cut to him arriving at his room which is full of Narns. One of them closes the door behind Veer, and we cut to the intro. Back on the station, Ivanova and Sheridan are having breakfast, which seems to have drastically improved in quality since they've broken away from Earth. And she is explaining her sequence of recent nightmares, including last night's in which she showed up at CNC completely unprepared for her duties. (laughs) Sheridan hypothesizes that her subconscious is still dealing with the recent changes for the station and that it'll level out soon. And hey, at least she didn't dream she showed up naked. We next cut to Londo, who is doing battle against his arch nemesis, a bug in his quarters. He skewers it with his sword just in time for someone to arrive, a beautiful young Centauri woman named Lindesty. Once Veer arrives, we find out what's going on. She is, well, nearly, Veer's brand new wife. Veer's status has risen due to his appointment on Minbar, and his family have arranged the marriage. Lindesay is beautiful, but Veer is really uncomfortable about all this. He has always wanted to marry for love. She, however, is a traditionalist and is super on board with this whole thing, Um, and she suggests that he could grow to love her. Veer and Lindesay have a walk in the gardens where she stalks him like a predator, and he is still extremely uncomfortable with the whole arrangement, but he gets more on board when she plants a kiss on him. Cutting back to Ivanova, she's on CNC, fully clothed this time. Zach Allen shows up and brings something odd to her attention. There have been an unusually high number of Narn coming through the station, uh, with transit papers approved by a... Abrahamo Lincoln. Susan notes the office that they came through and is shocked. She calls Veer to her office and he explains that he invented Mr. Lincoln as a way to help get sick and wounded Narn off the homeworld. They're being sent to work programs and the subterfuge is due to 
uh, all of the Centauri back home who would rather see the Narns dead than housed and fed, even if they're in work camps. He says he's trying to help in his own small way. Throughout all this, we have some development in the Sheridan subplot romance. John has invited Delenn to dinner in his quarters. Um, we cut to him having prepared the dinner and see that he has absolutely trashed his little galley kitchen in an attempt to prepare what is apparently just flarn cubes and carrot sticks for her. I don't know. Buddy. Buddy. How? It's like a goddamn tornado went through his kitchen and he's made, he's basically cubed a block of tofu and cut up some (laughs) carrot sticks. I can only think that he tried several other things and they all ended in dismal failure and then was like, okay. Well, it's not fruit, so he doesn't know how to deal with it. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, he should have. He should have just made a nice fruit salad for her. Yeah, but she, she takes the chaos in stride and is honestly touched that he made flarn for her um, in Bari food, um, albeit very badly, and manages to distract him in order to add salt and pepper to make it palatable. Their dinner is interrupted by an intrusion from the A plot. A Narn attacks Veer and Lindesay in the corridor, claiming a blood oath, and Sheridan rushes off to help. He saves Veer from being stabbed and is sliced on the arm, but buys enough time for security to show up and shoot the Narn. He and Ivanova are confused by the fact that a Narn apparently has a blood oath against Veer, who is not the sort of Centauri that one would think would have a blood oath against him, and Ivanova resolves to do some more digging. Back in his quarters, Veer is mystified by the fact that he's been punched, hit, or beaten up by someone every time he's been back to the station lately. Lindesay attempts to reassure him, calling him a hero for protecting her, and saying that the attack doesn't mean anything because that's just how Narns are. Gross. Veer meets with Ivanova, who explains he's likely still in danger. The Narn who attacked him came to the station with his pouch brother who is presumably next in line to fulfill the blood oath. Veer can't think of any reason why these Narns would hold a grudge against him, though, and explains who Lindesay is. He also asks Ivanova for sex advice, specifically tips on what women like when things get intimate. He explains that Centauri have six, and he's never gotten past dicks. Uh, one. Six dicks, to be clear. Yes, yes. He's, he's never gotten past past one previously. Ivanova is caught completely off guard, but manages to give some pretty good advice. Uh, Every woman is different, but enthusiasm, sincerity, genuine compassion, and humor can carry you through any lack of prior experience with high numerical value. You know, it's it's a long, long story, but, you know, at first, you know, I didn't think, but now, jeez, you know, can I ask you a question as long as you're here? I suppose. Okay. What do women want when things get, um, you know, uh, um, intimate, you know? Um, I I really don't think that, that we should be having this conversation, Vera. I mean, I, isn't there someone else? There's, there's only Londo, but I don't think that's a good idea. And since, you know, you're a, a woman, I thought maybe you might have some ideas. Well, I mean, it depends. I mean, uh, 
There's no single answer to that, Vera. I mean, every woman is different, but uh, if she's your wife, well, you must know a, a few things about her. Blank slate. Oh, well, um, well, there must have been other women before this. There were other women, but I never got past one. You mean first base? No, no, I mean one. You see, we have six, uh, we have six, you see, and each one is a different level of intimacy and pleasure. So, you know, first you have one, and that's, and then there's two, and then by the time you get to five, it's like, I, 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 I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it. Uh, I really don't know what to tell you, Vera. I mean, I've never really gotten this relationship thing down myself, okay? So I'm the last person in the world that should be giving out advice on, on this sort of thing. All I can say is that enthusiasm, sincerity, uh, genuine compassion, and humor can carry you through any lack of prior experience with high numerical value. Wow. I'm gonna remember that. Thank you. Thank you. Six. Delenn stops by Sheridan's quarters, nominally to check on his arm, but actually to flirt. She is worried about him rushing into danger and fastens his coat since he's struggling with it uh, because of his arm. She also suggests that perhaps they check the air recycling system, since with the whirlwind engagement of Veer and Lindesty, there must be something in the air. They share a meaningful look. John agrees that maybe there is at that. And they nearly kiss before Ivanova calls at precisely the wrong moment, explaining that Sheridan needs to head to Londo's quarters because there is a serious problem with Veer. Now that Ivanova has ruined the moment, John and Delenn are awkward and go their separate ways. In Londo's quarters, Ivanova reveals the disturbing conclusion to her investigation into the forged papers. All 2,000 Narns with forged papers are dead. Londo, of course, congratulates Veer on his initiative, and Veer explains that it's just another layer of forgery. Nobody cares about dead Narns, so he marked them as dead so they could reach safety and disappear from the Centauri records. Lando is pissed, saying that he will have to deal with the situation and with fear. Lindesty catches up with a very troubled fear in the gardens. When he says that his situation has to do with the Narns, she takes a really dark turn, spouting some extreme genocidal racism. Veer is horrified, and she says she has a present for him to cheer him up. She reveals a captive Narn, the Pouch Brother. It's not actually Veer who is the target of the Blood Oath. It was Lindesty. The sociopath. Yeah. Uh, she, she helped her father with eugenics on Narn after the war, killing whole people and villages with too much aggression. Um, these two escaped, thus the Blood Oath. Lindesay offers Veer a knife, asking him to kill the Narn as a token of his love for her. Veer is horrified, and we cut to him being yelled at by Londo. Apparently, the last envoy to Minbar also went native. Veer has been fired from that position and will be returning to his post on B5 as Londo's attaché. 
wrapping up Veer sees Lindesay off at customs and she says she'll wait for him and they part, each hoping that the other will grow out of their current beliefs. Ivanova comes up with a plan to do something meaningful and rid herself of those bad dreams. The Abrahamo Lincoln profile has not actually been burned, so she's beefed it up with a photo, Sheridan as a very fetching Centauri, and will continue to use it to get Nars to safety. And that's the episode. That's a lot of episode. Yeah, and it's a <laughs> fucking bananas episode, too. The Yeah, there's a lot going on here. Yeah. I don't know, like, there's there's got to be a term for it, because what Lindesty is isn't a heel turn, because she's, like, she's already, like, evil. But it's, like, there's, like, bad, and then there's the horror of recognizing just how bad she is. Yeah. I think it's when you meet somebody, I mean, I think we all vaguely remember when you would meet random people, since that doesn't really happen anymore with the pandemic, but back in the before times... Uh, you would meet a random person and you'd be having like a normal conversation and then they would say something weird and you'd be like, wait, you're a Republican. It's the same thing, right? They go on to say something worse after that. Yeah, then they make some like, once they've been outed, then they make some random like aggressive slur against, you know, SJWs or... uh. I don't know. They just say something shitty just to like, you know, now that they've been outed, they feel the need to be like extra shitty to like glory in their aggressive garbageness. It's like they take your stunned silence for like permission. Yeah. Meanwhile, you're just like, oh, no. The bizarre thing about Lindesty is that there's like this guilelessness to her where she's like, I don't know if she is actually. So it's not like she's. The I can't remember her name, the political officer that showed up last season, or is it earlier this season? Early the season. Yeah. Uh Masante. Masante, yeah. Where she's like, she acts like all dumb and like she's buying the party line, but then like there's this peek behind the curtain where she's like, Well, of course all the homeless people aren't fucking gone and there's no crime. We just kill everyone. Like you get this peak where she's like Fake it till you make it, man. Like, Lindisty's not like that. She's, I don't know if she's dumb or... She's so brainwashed. Or brainwashed or what, but like... Yeah. She's... I, I mean, she's she's bought it hook, line, and sinker. Like, yeah. I feel like it goes beyond simple, like, brainwashing. She's got crazy cult eyes. That's what it is. She's got those yeah. crazy cult eyes the whole time. And it's fucking creepy. And the scene just keeps going. Like, she just keeps describing more horrible, horrible shit. Yeah. And it's like, I'm uncomfortable. Yeah. Can we fast forward? I remember as a child being deeply unsettled by Lindisty. Because she is like an 11 on the, you know, stranger danger scale. And you just, you don't want to be anywhere near that. Do not leave any children. And and listen, that sort of includes Veer because he is our baby yeah. um, near her. <laughs> yeah. And every time I watch this episode, I'm shocked that she's not blonde because my memory always has her as blonde. Yeah. yeah. And then I watch it and I'm like, no, she has dark hair. That That's that's wrong. That's incorrect. She's blonde. Yeah. Do we ever see Centauri with not dark hair? Or is Ooh. it always kind of the same I think color? It's, I think it's always question. like, yeah, I think it's always that dark hair. I would hazard to guess that's because they've got like a maximum of three bald caps with ponytail attached. So <laughs> it's the same three dark haired 
ponytails, but that's interesting. I would have to, I don't know. Have we ever seen a yeah, blonde I, male Centauri? No, I don't think no. so. Like, I don't think we've seen, like, I think we've like Centauri get like one hair color. And I mean, that's probably because of like the, like the wigs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's interesting. And they, to have proper contrast, I'm sure. Yeah. But we've seen, we know they have like racial diversity because we've seen black Centauri before. Have we? Yeah. Have we? Oh. Mm-hmm. I don't oh. think Justin has. Uh, it might, if it's in a later episode, then I mean. I know we. Uh, I know that we've seen. Like as a primary character? Or oh, like no. It's like a, it, it's in a, a court scene. He's like one of the courtesans in one of the Centauri scenes. Uh, uh, okay. Okay. So we'll, I'm sure we'll get there. Um, yeah, I think he actually might be coming up soon. Interesting. Yeah, Lindesay is terrifying. Yeah, she's yeah. freaky. My first note uh, after Lindesay is uh, the observation that Londo's form when attempting to kill a bug is dramatically better uh, than when trying to kill his friend, which should tell you all you need to know about exactly what sort of swords were being crossed in that sword club, that that dueling club that he was a part of. Six at a time. Six at a time, right? Gosh. Um, I, I'm going to toss out the theory here that um, Ivanova is definitely a repressed alien fucker. Ah, uh, you know... That or just has a very just has a nice little bookmarks drop down. Um, yeah, I mean, in the world where we reboot Babylon Five and we have a funny scene <laughs> where somebody accidentally sees Ivanova's internet history, I feel like that is that is a very very good that that is a bit that we do. Ivanova's internet history has some wild. Wild bookmarks. She just keeps it private. Yeah. And that's fine. We're not kink shaming. I think six. I think that I think the idea that humans would not get out into space and immediately try to fuck everything that moves is absurd. And I don't think there's anything (laughs) wrong with that. As long as it doesn't, you know, create galaxy wide contagions or pandemics. You 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 do you, friend. I think it would be hilarious uh-huh. if it turned out that humans were like plague rats and nobody would sleep with a human because they didn't want diseases. Uh, but that aside. It's the one hope that sci-fi gives us that is that we will meet aliens. They will be hot. And yeah, <laughs> even if they're <laughs> not hot, all... even if they're not hot, somebody's going to want to fuck them just because they're alien. I mean, like I mean, it's really about the personality. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, look at the Mass Effect fandom and like how many people are super into Garrus. Right. How dare you? My beautiful, <laughs> handsome bird boyfriend. Of course, you're a Garrus person. I mean, I mean, I am totally a Garrus person. There, there, there is not a single romanceable alien in Mass Effect that I am not into. Yes. I'm really excited but, to play this game next month so I can finally understand some of these references because I've literally never played it and I don't get any of but this. But he, he's not like what you'd consider to be like objectively pretty, but... You know, he's 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 real good. If you've got flexibility, he's got reach. Yep. Uh, oh, the speaking, Jude. Speaking of the scene with the bug, the foley choices in that yes. are the little skittering. Oh my god! Yes, yes. It's, it's such a good scene. I also like how abjectly terrified. I guess so. I think this goes back. I am. I'm gonna. 
credit JMS with more thought than this scene deserves. And I'm going to say, I'm going to posit that the Centauri, as a consequence of the Nakaline feeder, have like a deep-seated cultural, maybe even like racial slash like species level fear of insects because of the Nakaline <laughs> feeder. Uh, I mean, who wouldn't after a, you know, after being terrorized by a psychic dick bug? <laughs> who wouldn't be terrified of all insects but that's my theory is that he's he's afraid that this bug which he can barely see because it's moving so fast for all he knows it's got psychic powers and dick hands or dicklet little little tiny dick legs dicticles i mean dick-ticles. isn't that just the movie alien being afraid of a psychic dick bug yeah 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 that's fair uh god can you imagine that would be great. Showing Londo alien. <laughs> Gosh, I like there. There's one thing I, I, I rest. He just lose it. He would just completely lose it. So I think one thing this episode does really well is plays with like the the more affable side of Londo. Um, and like it, it gives you like Londo in his more like sort of like relaxed, funny state. It's Uncle Londo. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like, it's it's like Uncle Londo, who's the fun guy from season one, who has shenanigans and just wants to give Jakar a wedgie. But then the last 15 minutes of this episode, you get the mm-hmm. snapback to, no, this is the real Londo. We're not rooting for him. He might be funny, but he is not here to, uh, he is the antagonist in this story. Yeah. He's, yeah. Mm-hmm. He's hilarious, so long as you're not a Narn, in which case he would have given Vera medal for killing 2,000 of your friends. I mean, props to JMS and props to Peter Jurassic as well for really clinching both ends of the acting spectrum in this time. Because you you start out and it's the the like it's like the 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 Londo who we've always loved, right? The like the the bug. <laughs> oh, you 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 with your little friends, um, and you know, speaking with customer service hell and. <laughs> It's hilarious, and then later it's, he t- he takes that dark turn as well. Yeah, um, it's fantastic. Yeah, it says something about the writing and acting that feel like in other hands he would just be comically evil, but here he is comic and fucking evil. Yeah, yeah, and it and it sells both aspects. <laughs> yeah, I also think it's very Londo that he hits on Lindisty right up until the moment that he finds out that she's there for Veer, and he's like, excuse me? <laughs> and, and then she's like, no, I'm Veer's wife. And he's like, mm, mm-hmm. Oh, well, this will be funny. Okay, well, I can I can get on board with that. This will be fun. And then he's like, all right, well, I don't need to hit on you because this will be good for a goof. Like, that's yeah. perfect Londo, where he, he will put aside his own horny nature because it's going to be a fun goof on Veer. Like... If there is not a better <laughs> summation of season one Londo, I don't know what it would be. I also like when he comments about the bug evolving like <laughs> legs. And that just made me feel for the bug for a little bit. I want the bug to go on this whole evolution journey and then have a Jason Ironheart moment where he just opens <laughs> yeah. and becomes the universe. Plays <laughs> all bad CGI bug spinning there instead. That would be very good. God. He's so descriptive 
with talking about the bug of like, you know, that the, we must kill it before it develops language. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, and like, and, and he just does, he just does such a good job of selling it with like, you know, selling it and interacting with basically an empty set and acting. It's, it's, it's a, when people are good at it, they're good at it. Um, yeah. It's like, you know, yeah. we don't have to see, we don't have to see the bug until it's on the end of the sword to know that it's like, it is, yeah, and then and then it's just a date or something. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, it's like a date that they suck some fur on. Yeah, <laughs> like there's just little legs there. It's... Speaking of food um... and dates, <laughs> and dates. Oh yeah, that, that's a much better transition. Damn it. Um, thank you, thank you for the quality Sheridan Latin content because uh, it gives us life. But God, John, don't cook. Ever. <laughs> Don't do anything. He's such a he's such a doof in everything he does in this. It really emphasizes how like feral all of the officers are though. Yeah. They do get like an upgrade on their breakfast, like as of this episode, because I assume that they are no longer getting they are no longer getting blue goop from Earth. They no longer have blue gogurt. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just yeah. they have like breakfast burritos and like fruit and it's just like yeah they're probably like for all we know there's blue goop inside the burritos they just got a <laughs> they just scavenged a bunch of tortillas from a shipment and they're like well it'll feel better if we eat it in the tortilla yeah is the implication there that they're now mostly on alien food and breakfast burritos are like not an earth thing <laughs> Am I, mean, I reading too see, much? I think this it. is. A, I think my my personal interpretation is that this is a Scalzi burrito moment, where they just like, <laughs> okay, we've got Flarn, we've got Spoo, and we've got an un, an unidentifiable Centauri sauce that may or may not have organs in it. They just slap it all in a burrito and just be like, don't think about it, just eat it. It tastes fine. Just don't think too hard about it. And we know that they have lots of fruit on the station, so that yeah. tracks. Yeah. So there's a future episode of season three, which I watched last night, which is Walkabout. It introduces the idea of Babylon 5 that there is convergent food evolution. Like, for example, <laughs> right. um, yes. that every every culture has um, has developed Swedish meatballs. Um, specifically. Don't know why. <laughs> I can't Just wait happens. to talk about that, but but this is I mean, there's there's something similar like in actual Earth cultures, which is pretty much every culture on Earth has two common foods, which is we fried some meat and we fried some dough. And maybe yeah. just maybe just the burrito, maybe the breakfast burrito is one of those pinnacles, those final evolutions. Of like where food will end up. See, I I believe that. put in the Chase and Ironheart sound effect again. There's there's also the so many so many different cultures. Like any culture that has both tomatoes and eggs has made like eggs eggs poached in tomatoes, pretty much. The only gift. Food's weird like that. There are certain like obvious paths that you can take, and that's why I believe the Swedish meatball thing. Like, once you have meat, it seems obvious to me that you're just going to, like, grab a handful of it and squish it and then cook it. Like, yeah. 
Yeah. That 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 makes sense to me. That I I 100% buy that Swedish meatballs are a galactic convergence point. Sold. Yeah. It's carcinization but with protein. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> now there's a question, does every other planet invent crabs? <laughs> Ooh. I don't even want to know what, like the darn homeworld's version of a crab looks like. Ooh. It's probably nasty. <laughs> well, it's a lizard. <laughs> Obviously, it's it, a it, land lizard crab. Yes, because because oh, we're in science fiction and everything is is monotyped. So, yes, all Narn things are red colored cave lizard typed by that logic. If humans if humans but, were a species that you encountered in a science fiction show, everything would be like f- from one environment and all of our animals would look like weird humans. <laughs> oh god crabs would be little fleshy things with little hands like Argh. i'm imagining like, the cat from what we do in the shadows uh, <laughs> where he can't oh quite god. get the face right so he's just like <laughs> yeah exactly so if if the if everything on narn is um cave lizard type what's super effective against it oh, oh this is a pokemon reference isn't it uh, I mean, obviously, it is uh, falling rocks. <laughs> <laughs> That's a joke that um, we, that uh, rip. <laughs> sorry, darn hope world. That's what you get. <laughs> that's that's harsh. That or psychic damage. Yeah, or psychic. Oh. Yep, there you go. That's that's mean. Can we talk about alien dicks now? I've been waiting like a half an hour I, to talk about alien dicks. I want to say one one last thing before we get into alien dicks. Um, on the this is just a, such a fun episode, and it's great thrown in like in the midst of all the serious stuff. There's one little bit that I just cracks me up every time. So in the scene where Veer and Linda see are getting attacked by the Narn. There's a uh, yes. random Pachmara walking oh God, through yes. the corridor who then happens upon this this whole thing and just backs away and nopes out of that whole yeah. situation. I didn't I notice it. That. And then I saw your note, so I went back and watched it. And it's fucking hilarious. Pachmara is just like, I'll come back later if someone's dead, but I'm not getting involved right now. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's lends a lot of verisimilitude. I feel like because yeah. like if you were a random Pachmara coming across that situation, you would also nope the fuck out of there. Yeah, that's very good. It's very funny. So please, please talk about the alien dicks. Okay, uh, <laughs> that's what we're here for. I love the idea. Okay, first of all, I love that their bases have nothing to do. I have so many thoughts. I gotta. I have to like organize my thoughts. Uh, yeah, because we, we learned a lot it. about Centauri sex. We did in like a th- like what was it like a forty five second scene? We learn an enormous amount about Centauri sexuality. Well, at least heteronormative Centauri sexuality. But I love the idea that they have a base system based on how many. Like yeah. on on that, which b- begs a couple of questions. One, do they not have handies? Because you know. <laughs> Like, do they, do they, do they not, is that like halves and quarters? Do they do like percentiles up to, uh, for that? (laughs) Um, And I, but I really like the idea. It's actually a really nice little bit of world building that they have this like numerical system. It just adds a lot of, you know, 
believability to this weird, bizarre six dick system that the Centauri have. I also have a lot of questions about like, can they do it in like a movie theater while they're sitting down? Okay, that was my first thing. Is like, <laughs> can you just, can you just like, we, we like they have enough like. If you can steal playing cards reach. with it. And you, the flexibility. Yeah, you can do it anywhere, is my but like yeah. is that true for six or do you or is there like do you get into mobility constraints when you're when you're getting up to six? I mean, I feel like using all six in that situation is noticeable, but like one at least is very stealthy. Yeah. I mean, is it just normal if you're like I love his description of it. he's like one is like meh <laughs> It's so good. Like if if you're like at like Centauri Thanksgiving with your new partner, is it just like how socially unacceptable is it to do one or two under the table? Yeah. Right? Oh God. <laughs> I I don't know. They kind of have this have this Roman thing going on, so maybe that's just cool to do at dinner. I don't know. Well, and here's yeah. I mean, if is Londo's card stealing. Is that a situation where, like, he just assumes because there's no other Centauri around, nobody will, like, cop on to what's going on? Or is that, like, at a Centauri card game, are there just dicks everywhere? <laughs> they just hold They just hold the cards in their dicks. Well, you got to have yours out to stop other people from cheating with theirs. <laughs> so, so, it like, so it's just like... That's what the fencing club is. It's a defensing. It's a, like oh you have to like set up like a defense, a defensive perimeter where you're just like sword fighting away. This is this, this conversation is has gone this to is places. So cursed. <laughs> now, something that I am curious about is like because like it, it's implied that you know like it's like is more is intimate. I'm like, I'm, it, which leads me to think is like. Is there like a neurochemical thing or maybe even like a, a small, like small scale psychic thing that goes on there? It's interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it raises a lot of weird questions. Like, and because it's all the way up the back, what happens if you're in a car accident and you get damaged on one side? Because it's such a wide area. Like, I'm just imagining like the potential for your entire, like, not maybe not your entire, but like significant parts of your reproductive sexual anatomy to be damaged a little bit is pretty high. Yeah, but it it seems like based on Londo's reaction to the glass of water, I like that we're citing examples to (laughs) support our points on this. It seems like they are less sensitive and less like prone to damage than normal. Yeah, that's true. And And I imagine there might be like, less hang-ups about it yeah when you come up with a culture where it's all that prominent yeah I'm just- um, and i i wonder if also like there's a certain amount of redundancy there no that's like true. maybe that's kind of why they have so many and like maybe you only actually need one to like really get the job done yeah yeah it may be that even though even though there may be a loss of like intimacy or or uh pleasure if you have one or two lost uh on either side you can still reproduce with just one yeah i'm we're not going to i I would rather not speculate on it precisely how that gets done um (laughs) that's that's uh for us to talk about with scott next time wolf 
Yeah, I'm just. <laughs> anyway, uh... um, we did. We did want to call it the the um, pun in the episode name. Yes, it's so good. Yeah, sick transit beer is Latin, uh, which is in- interesting because the Centauri are sort of shitty space roam. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and it translates to "thus passes the man," roughly. Yeah, like it's it's in, like it's not quite grammatically correct, but it gets the it gets the job done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for a yeah. pun. Fun fact: I love that pun so much that uh, "sick transit beer" has been the SSID on my Wi-Fi for <laughs> about fifteen years. <laughs> wow! Yeah, that's up there. That's up there with every one of my laptops being named White Star. There you go. Nice. Listen, listen. You two are fucking nerds. <laughs> also, Justin, um, our our Wi-Fi is called Cicelium. Wow. Yeah, nerds up in this house, uh, in this podcast. Yeah, uh, I was watching uh, B five with my roommates when I w- was living in the city, and God, this would have been like two thousand seven. Yeah, two thousand seven. And we got a new Wi-Fi router, and I made the SSID Sick Transit Beer. And it's been that way since. Beautiful. I thought so. Got anything else we want to cover on this one? No. Not me. Ivanova's trans don't at me. So is Delenn, but that's obvious. <laughs> Delenn's for sure. And that was intentional for Delenn as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Also, I saw a note that Delenn is adorable. And uh, I yeah. agree. She, and I love her. Like, yeah. all the chair Delenn stuff is so yes. good. I can't believe that Ivanova had to, like, had to make that call right then. Like, come on. Come on, Ivanova. I think that's just, <laughs> I think that's Ivanova's, like, low-level, like, you know, like, latent telepathy. Yeah. yeah. She's the official sneak of Babylon 5. She knows. <laughs> she's, she's got to sense exactly the wrong moment to uh, <laughs> to make that telephone call. On a scale of, like, romantic bullshit where you have like actual serendipity up here and you have, Oh look, mistletoe down here. There's something (laughs) in the air is like negative smooth. (laughs) And it only works because Sheridan is himself negative smooth. Sheridan is like a big dumb dork. And She's just kind of like calibrated in on his level of suave. And so it it works completely. But God help her. Like, she's lucky that like she picked like her human for like right out of the gate. Cause if she ever had to like try and date anybody else after Sheridan, she'd just be completely hosed because she had learned her social skills on this goober. And they would not remotely apply to any anyone else. But God, is it nice to have a leading couple with actual chemistry? Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. <laughs> After the uh, two wolf people that we had first season. Do we want to talk about Excalibur now and, uh, and yes. Arthuria? Yes, let's do it. All right. <clears throat> the real reason we are here, gentle listeners, Jude, take us away. All right, episode 13, season three, A Late Delivery from Avalon, written by JMS, directed by Mike Vehar. Good old Mike Vehar. He does good work on this show. We like Mike. 
Uh, in our A plot, we begin with a transport arriving at the station. We do a slow zoom in on a sleeping man and into his dream. In a long, dramatic hallway, he shuts the door on a dream of flashing lights and explosions, but he cannot shut it out entirely and flees the dream to the sound of horns and pipes and drums to find a sword which seems to bring him relief. On the station, Franklin is, for once, being a doctor. Marcus has brought him down below to nip an outbreak of Banta flu in the bud before it can spread. Franklin is shocked that Marcus caught it so early. Uh, but Marcus says that he simply recognized it was likely when he saw lurkers eating mixed human and alien food, the apparent cause of the flu. They discuss the plight of the lurkers, and we get Marcus's charmingly nihilistic philosophy on life. A lot of folks around here seem to think that lurkers deserve what they get. I figure it's better to let them die and... And thus deplete the surplus population. Dickens. You know... I used to think it was awful that life was so unfair. Then I thought, wouldn't it be much worse if life were fair and all the terrible things that happen to us come because we actually deserve them? So now I take great comfort in the general hostility and unfairness of the universe. Back in MedLab, Franklin is actually doing doctor things as Marcus watches over the two worst-affected lurkers. Franklin pries into ranger business, a.k.a. triggers some exposition from Marcus about the ranger pin. They talk about the Minbari, and Marcus says of their language, it's a subtle language for a subtle people, which I think is a great quote about the Minbari. And then when asked what else he was taught, we get an interesting little speech about the things he learned, how to fight, how to breathe, etc. And then at the end, he says, they taught me about terror, how to use it, how to face it. And that, of course, is what Franklin gets a hard-on for, the fucking weirdo. <laughs> you can practically see it lifting his scrubs. He says, I think I'd like to hear more about that. And resists the urge to lick his lips, but Marcus shuts him down. No, I don't think you would, which is giving Franklin more credit than he deserves. After MedLab, the two of them are, I don't know, taking a walk. I don't know why Marcus is hanging out with Franklin. He's got better taste than that. <laughs> and they end up near docking when they hear an alarm. Our uneasy sleepyhead, walking through security, has set off a weapons alarm. When confronted, Homeboy draws a fucking sword, pretty gracefully at that, and pops open his cloak to reveal he's wearing a full suit of chain and tabard. It's a good look, really. Uh, I want to point out that his form is pretty good, too. He keeps his hands arranged decently. He keeps the point, more or less, on his enemies. Londo could learn a thing or two from this guy. Marcus, good English boy, bounces right into the fray because he's 100% not going to let nameless security dorks kill the risen king of England. Uh, he takes a knee and welcomes Arthur to the station. He lays it on a little too thick, though, when he starts name-dropping Lancelot and Galahad, and Arthur draws down on him with the blade and tells him that he is not mad. He knows they are all dead, and you can hear the tremor in his voice Marcus is finally able to convince him to chill and let Franklin examine him, again, displaying a really aggressive lack of good sense, but that's our resident himbo for you. Uh, since he is not a vulnerable woman, however, maybe Marcus just assumes that Arthur is unlikely to be mistreated by Franklin.
Back in MedLab again, Franklin is determined to figure out who this guy is. He tells a flunky, who was unable to find an ID or anything modern in his clothes, to run fingerprints and DNA. Franklin talks to Arthur and asks him who he can be who he says he is. Arthur begins to explain what happened. He retells a version of the story of Camlin. He says he was taken away to heal until a time when he was most needed. When Franklin and Marcus take the story to Garibaldi and Sheridan, Sheridan is immediately dismissive, but Marcus isn't ready to let it go. He brings up Sebastian and compares the account of Arthur being taken to Avalon with the story of the Vorlons taking him out of his time. Franklin thinks he's experienced a nervous breakdown. In the middle of their conversation, Franklin gets a link that Arthur has escaped, which happens all the time. Do they just use toothpicks <laughs> to lock their doors for fuck's sake? All they had was a sword. <laughs> I would like to point out that there has literally never been a plot-sensitive patient in MedLab that has not escaped. Uh, I feel like other than other than the woman in the long dark. Yeah, well, go figure. Franklin manages to keep the woman he's jonesing for locked up tight. Yeah, mm. not not real good on. Uh, doesn't speak well for him. What does in down below, Arthur confronts an old lurker woman whose last precious possession, a silver frame with a picture of her husband, has been stolen. Arthur tells her he will retrieve it for her. Nearby, Jakar is doing what looks like a shady deal, but it turns out he's just paying a smuggler to carry messages to the Narn families on the Narn homeworld. They hear a noise and watch as Arthur interrupts some thugs beating up another lurker. Arthur declaims at them a bit, demanding the frame back while they threaten him with pipes and knives. Arthur is pretty nobly handling himself until backup arrives, at which point Jakar fucking throws himself over the rail into the fight and announces that Arthur too has backup because he's the best. Uh, <laughs> so good. He, he does a little hiss and a little Narn lizard foo fight pose with his fingers out like claws. <laughs> it's fucking ridiculous and I love it. <laughs> And then we unfortunately do not get any of this fight, which is the only part of this episode I don't like, other than Franklin. <laughs> but then we cut to Arthur putting the frame back in the sleeping old woman's arms as Jakar looks on smiling. Then, as is proper for a post-ass-kicking celebration, they go to a bar where Jakar is positively beaming at having gotten to beat up some bad guys. No ancient evils. Just bad guys who made a very satisfying thump as they hit the floor. Arthur then tells him about his nightly code and the round table. Jakar is very apparently tanked, but is also very apparently fascinated with this concept and is listening very closely. Arthur says of Jakar, in what is the best description of Jakar I've heard, I sense in you a warrior born, but a priestly manner and refined education which clearly flatters Jakar. He then dubs Jakar Sir Jakar, the Red Knight, and Jakar takes this shit so seriously. Yes, it's he's amazing. tanked, and I've taken some silly shit pretty seriously when I've been in my cups, but I love that Jakar doesn't think any part of this is fucking weird. Like, not from the start, even when he was sober, no part of this guy with a sword... 
King Arthur, time travel. No part of this is apparently weird to Jakar. He's just on board. He knows a true seeker when he sees one. Yes, yes, exactly. Thank you. As they talk, Arthur seems to have another flashback, talking about being responsible for his knights. And we see his dream again, but this time we see more, and we see a Minbari fighter being destroyed. He also tells more of his story of Camelot. He tells a story about how the truce was broken accidentally when one of Mordred's knights drew his sword to kill an adder. That's when Marcus finds them, telling them that he respects what they did, but he'll be in trouble if Arthur doesn't come with him. Jakar loudly and drunkenly insists that he will vouch for Arthur's character. Honestly, if at this point you don't want to go drinking with Jakar, then I don't want to know you. Especially given the fact that he's getting tanked on YooHoo. On YooHoo, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Here's my two cents on this. I hope canonically that it's YooHoo. I hope that Arthur is just pounding back like glasses of YooHoo and Jakar <laughs> unknowingly is like, I've never had YooHoo. That sounds nice. Without knowing that it just gets Narns tanked. <laughs> Whatever it is in the, in the fucking mail. Yeah. Something about, well, let's not, let's not give YooHoo too much credit. I don't think there's any real milk sure. in YooHoo, but whatever's <laughs> in it. I love the idea that like Narns get tanked on YooHoo. I love the idea that it's like a, a, a next level lactose intolerance though. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think, it's like, when was the last time I had a YooHoo? And it honestly might be like the last century. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's accurate. Uh, but it's 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 really cute. He is somehow even more heartfelt and charming. And it's great. He is, like I said, he's super adorable. And if you are not a person who drinks, it, it is not uncommon to end up on the floor uh, like this. But he's, he's just the best. Um, Arthur and Marcus depart, and Jakar attempts to follow them, and then he ends up passed out on the floor, to which Arthur says, uh, you know, this is, you know, this happened all the time to Sir Gawain. That's why we called him the Green Knight. And I'm just like, whoever wrote this episode, well, like, I mean, JMS wrote it, but this this is a nerdy fucking joke, and I'm I'm here for it. <laughs> We're back in MedLab again, and Franklin's snooping has paid off, and he has dug up Arthur's real identity via the Earth Force DNA database. When Marcus reads it, he insists that Arthur cannot be shown. He says it will kill him. Franklin says it will heal him. I have an obligation to help, he says, over the sound of every eyeball that has ever watched the show rolling like a bowling ball down the hardwood of the lane. How, you ask? Oh, by just traumatically exposing this poor fellow, who obviously is trying to deal with some shit, to the you know his true identity, which is certainly not going to be traumatic. That's his plan. Just tell him. Marcus says, let him be Arthur. Better the illusions that exalt us. Which apparently is a quote. It's a nice quote. I like it. For a himbo, Marcus is very well read. Um, first Dickens and now Pushkin. Marcus throws the Hippocratic Oath in his face, and Franklin somehow resists the urge to laugh in his face, as if that has any power over him. <laughs> in his quarters, Franklin has awoken Arthur and shows him a picture of himself. He doesn't rec recognize it until Franklin confronts him with his name and history. He was at the Battle of the Line, and more than that, he was a gunnery sergeant on the Prometheus, the first ship to encounter the Minbari. The Minbari ship approached with, his, with its gun ports open, as is their tradition. 
the Earth Force ships misunderstood and attacked. It started the Earth-Minbari War. Arthur struggles with Franklin's information, weeps and shakes, and talks about the need to return Excalibur to the Lady of the Lake before eventually collapsing into a comatose state because fuck you, Franklin. You're a hack. You have no business being a doctor. Back in MedLab, they lay him out with his sword and Franklin bemoans the fact that he can't fix everything. No, you fuck. You can't fix anything. You're a goddamn user. Die in a fire. I hate I hate Franklin in this episode. <laughs> and I fucking hate the, this particular moment. We'll talk about it after. But I have strong feelings about his so-called healing efforts in this scene. For what it's worth, same. Yeah, it's yeah. hot garbage. It's like, do you have a degree in psychology, Franklin? I think not. Nobody in the 23rd century does. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we've learned on this show. Uh, God bless Marcus, however, uh, because Marcus is not content to leave the King of the Britons a vegetable, even if he's not the actual King of the Britons. Uh, he logics that the man bought a ticket, boarded a transport, all modern things. He had to have a plan. He came here on the anniversary of the start of the Earth-Minbari War for a reason. What was it? Then they figure it out. Delenn comes to Arthur and we see her in his dream. She is the lady of the lake to him. He came to seek forgiveness from her, to give the sword to her. He wakes and hands it over. No words are exchanged. We close on Arthur's story with him going to the Narn homeworld to help with the resistance. He's going to inspire them, Jakar says. Give them a new round table. The episode ends with Marcus only half-jokingly positing that Kosh is Merlin and then spinning from there to suggest who on B5 would be who in Camelot. He says that he's Galahad since he's sinless, Franklin is Percival, <laughs> and Ivanova is Gawain. In the B plot, uh, B for butthole plot, since it's a Garibaldi B plot, B5 is starting to get some trade traffic in after breaking away from Earth, and apparently the docking fees are welcome. Garibaldi is also feeling the effects of the breakaway. He's got a package in the post office and is being charged 100 credits, uh, three times the regular fee to pick it up. The postmaster, very reasonably, points out how costs work, but Karen Garibaldi is having none of it. And after threats, yelling, and guilt trips don't work. So obviously he's going to go back at night with some security flunky to break in. Because the law doesn't apply to Karen Garibaldi. The flunky is not into it, but Garibaldi says he'll leave payment for what he thinks he, it should cost. He shoots the lock off the gate, only to reveal the postmaster, who charges him 20 more credits for the lock. Garibaldi eventually pays for the box, and even puts up with the, with the postmaster's prank of a mangled box with good grace, since he has a final say of his own. Once he's taken possession of the box, he tells the postmaster that now that the post office on Earth isn't doing it, he'll have to start paying the space's rent. 100 credits a month. I'm 100% sure that this is not real and it's just Garibaldi being a corrupt fascist. The end. It probably is real, but he's not like the proper thing for Garibaldi would to do would be to then go to like Sheridan and Ivanova and be like, this thing has fallen through the cracks, not to like deal with it. Ex in the, funny. You know, yeah. yeah, exactly. Like a like that's the way it's framed. He's extorting. Yeah, not like a goddamn mafioso <laughs> going in there. Also, I want to say, you know, we've we've established that one credit is about equal to one GBP back in 1995. So, you know, a hundred credits is not like 
you know, cheap, certainly. But that's a big package. And like, I've mailed shit to whales. And being able to send something from Earth to B5 for 100 credits sounds like a fucking bargain in the best of times. Yeah. Now in Garibaldi, it's probably like salami too, and that's really hard <laughs> to get to ship internationally. It is. That's he says. Yeah, it's, it's salami and garlic, and it's a it's a bunch of it's olive oil and olive cheese oil. and yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's a bunch of <laughs> Italian food, so he can cook for. I I also want to point out that the 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 toolbox that they're using for like all the packages from Earth, I've owned that Same toolbox. And here, I thought that was my note <laughs> in the outline. That must have been like, like, like every. I use that for sure. Yeah, everybody's introductory toolbox because I made that comment and uh, I saw your comment and I made that comment to somebody and they recognized it as well. It must have been like some super cheap generic <laughs> toolbox that they were handing out for a while. Yeah, I mean that's I, I used it to store X wing minis. Uh, <laughs> like it, it's like yeah, the life's little pockets you can store all the tokens yeah. there. Um, that sounds yeah, that sounds on brand for you. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and like listen, Garibaldi is always wrong, but especially here, do not fuck with the post office. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I I feel like, pardon me if I'm being presumptuous, but I I feel like this episode needs to be dedicated to the post office and. <laughs> Assorted post people, thank you for your service. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm down with that. Like, Jesus. Yeah. God, it's such a dick move. There's no part of this. I don't know who's... I don't... When you write this, is you, are you trying to make Garibaldi look like a fucking douche? Like, I don't understand what, what, you're, try, what you're aiming for here, because it doesn't make Garibaldi look good. It makes Garibaldi look like a... But and the postmaster is so nice too. Like he's still palling around with them, and he does the prank even after that. All that shit, yeah. Garibaldi put him through. It's not like it's a markup where it's going from like a hundred credits, which is a reasonable price to ship that. Yeah. To like, okay, you'll fork fork over a grand or something like that. Like, yeah. you know, it's it's not that type of price difference. It's like, okay, instead of paying thirty five credits, you're going to pay a hundred for getting the stuff a very long way mm-hmm. through back channels in you know, yeah, the middle of a civil war. <laughs> Precisely. I think this. I think this is like a subset of like nineties writing that it paints the like. It's better to do the thing cheap and be sneaky and evil, like sneaky and bad about it. And it's like, it's this thing of like, so long as you're clever, being wrong and being thrifty is better. It's a weird, like, the, like the, the, the psychology behind it is weird, but it's just like. I think it also. It's like somebody running a scam to save like 20 bucks on like groceries. It very much is a plot line that you would expect to see in a Friends episode. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which is not a not a a ringing endorsement. Garibaldi would be Ross. Yeah. <laughs> I also have a note here uh, that uh, I feel obligated to point out that Arthur has entirely the wrong kind of sword for his backstory, and uh, I at least <laughs> would have go. twigged him right off the bat for being not the king of the Britons, uh, based on the fact that. Swords of the 6th century were of the Spatha type, 
Um, the closest thing that most people will know when it comes to Spothas are like Gladiator, Russell Crowe's film Gladiator. Not entirely accurate, but that's like the closest comparison pop culture wise that I could think of. Uh, they had the sort of stubbier end and the short cross guard and the short uh, pommel, uh, as opposed to the sword that he is using in the episode, which is a type 13, uh, according to Oakshot's typology. Uh, 13D, I think, <laughs> as far as I can tell. That's a 15 or 16th century weapon, usually Italian by manufacture. That's... Okay, I, I, I want to issue a correction, listeners. Damning your Wi-Fi of sick transit veer was not the dirtiest thing we were going to be discussing in this episode. <laughs> Look. Yeah, I didn't want to interrupt that. <laughs> that was amazing. I take my sword shit seriously. All right. <laughs> Uh, also, also linguistic drift that he doesn't have the right accent. I mean, yes, absolutely. Which gets called for. I yeah, think. yeah, yeah. The only thing that sword is consistent with is the timing of uh, the Mort d'Arthur, which is where like everything that he says comes from. There is a fairly consistent timeline of Arthurian mythology, and all of the stuff, all of the knightly virtue horseshit, uh, Camlin. Uh, the conflict with Mordred, all that's a lot of that stuff, not all of it, but a lot of that stuff was added in what's considered like the late stage, uh, the rom the romance stage, uh, mm -hmm. with Mallory's Mort D'Arthur. And that's about the same timeline as when, uh, that kind of a sword, the type, the, the type, sorry, not 13, type 18. Sorry. Roman numerals are hard. <laughs> I mean, none of us were going to call you on it, so. Just saying. It's 18, not 13. I know what a V stands for. Although, technically, I think the earliest Star of the Records we have do mention Camlin and Mordred, but not what the relationships are. Yeah. Or what they were about. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a nerd, too. Yeah. <laughs> Which I, I, is, is sort of a fun thing, because, like, Arthur, Arthurian myth is, I mean, it, it's something that has evolved through like numerous sources and origins and like it's something that can be interpreted in a lot of ways yeah. and like I, I think it's an interesting thing of like you know, there probably is a historical basis for the origin of the King Arthur myth but like it's been so warped by you know centuries of storytelling yeah. that like you know it's, it's fascinating to think like okay there's a dude of the 23rd century who as a trauma response, is going to fall into this. <laughs> um, wonderful. Arthuriana is the original fan fiction. It yeah. started out as presumably t somebody telling stories about something that happened. Presumably. If you, assume, if you grant mm -hmm. that there was a historical basis, somebody makes up songs or, or oral, rep oral recitations about what happened with the original Arthur. And over the years, you have different people retelling those stories, these iconic stories, in their own way, adding things that are culturally relevant to their culture to make those stories resonate with their particular time and place, but not just the updating like the story, but updating the method. So they become songs, they become 
poems. They're they're cast retelling these stories in whatever is the uh, hip medium of the time. That's and then they become books, and then they become films, and now video games and trashy supermarket novels, and they. It's one of the things that I think is the most fascinating about Arthurian tales is the way that they are consistently reinvented, not just in terms of what is considered the Arthur story, but how the mediums in which that story is reinvented over the years. I mean, and now in the modern day, it's just like, I mean, it's just it's in every conceivable medium and, and there's a million versions of that story. But I think it's really interesting the way that over time, it was not just not just the story, but also the medium. And I think that that's very, very cool that it was such a that evolution. And in the modern day, it would be surprisingly in the tradition of the thing to add your own Gary Stew uh, deviant artoses to the story. Yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that's because that's how Lancelot happened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, you know, we've talked we've talked a lot about how B5 has a lot of, like, Tolkien influences in it. Uh, actually, um. I was not very influenced by The Lord of the Rings. I mean, I'd read it and it was in the background. <laughs> but I didn't really add a lot of explicit references to The Lord of the Rings. That's my bad JMS impression that comes out every time we reference Tolkien because he's a dummy. <laughs> I cannot wait for the dunk contest we're going to have for Grey 17. <laughs> in any case, you know, the looking at Arthurian parallels in the show is also really interesting because we've got, I, I, I really love when Marcus is like, hmm, well, you know, if we, if we think about B5s and who would be who, which is like, it's the sort of thing that we as nerds do of like, <laughs> you know, yeah. well, if we were to, tie these two things together who would be the aragorn and who would be the gandalf yeah marcus is doing that is fantastic but and it's it's not kosh who's merlin it's valen interesting mm-hmm. the the aging backward yeah. oh that's right he is <laughs> yeah and marcus frames it as this thing like kosh is doing like projecting it into the past so maybe he's remembering something accurate I'm like, that's not even a ridiculous thing to suggest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they mentioned um, that you just met Jack the Ripper. Like, yeah, no, Valen is totally <sighs> Gandalf. Or, er, uh, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> imagine you shall not pass in Kosh's voice. It, it works. <laughs> There's a line at the end of this episode where Marcus says, "Okay, there's a couple of Marcus things that are just good here." Yes, um, have your, let's have a which let's includes, have a himbo corner with yeah. With we'll, we'll, we'll just we'll just have my little boy here. We'll, we'll we'll take a couple minutes. But first of all, Marcus, yes, I'm British, even if I've never stepped on Earth in my life. Cole, bless you. Um, but there's a line at the end of the episode where Marcus says, "Where I come from, his story holds power," referring to King, to Arthur. <laughs> Which is the sort of thing you would hear about, like, an alien speaking about a fake religious figure. Yeah. And I just, like, JMS treating the British as, like, something akin to, like, the Klingons talking about Kalos. Yeah. It's sort of kind of... That's the perfect like, yeah. analogy. It's so true. Yeah. It's so true. 
Yeah. No, oh, that's really that's beautiful. good. That's really good. I also think that like just like this episode goes with Arthur and like the opening bit we have where Marcus recognizes that like Banty flu or Banta flu or whatever is um like is the cause of the the sickness in the lurker population as well as his stuff with Arthur. I think if he had not been a like you know, if he had not been drafted into a war with a with a horrible alien menace from ancient times, Marcus would have been a very good social worker. Or if we could ever find any evidence that they existed in the twenty third century, maybe a counselor or therapist of some sort. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but there are no therapists in this future. No, there are. Not. That field is dead. <laughs> I have to object to that because we've seen how Marcus deals with like. His philosophies on, like, dealing with trauma, which are generally, like, uh, repression and avoidance and, like, stick well, shenanigans. And he's, he's one of those people who, like, can look at other people and recognize and things about them that he doesn't recognize in himself. Yeah. Which, you know, yeah. I, I don't think is entirely unheard of in therapists etc yeah here now now marcus is is so pure in this episode he's like shaming franklin with his you know recognizing the the banta flu stuff and then he uh, he it's not that he wants to believe that it's arthur but it's that he he like the minbari and like jakar he sees the seeker in arthur and he's not willing to throw this guy out necessarily. I love that about Marcus. Mm-hmm. And it's the it's the Marcus thing of like you know he really feels like you know everybody deserves respect, right? Yeah, yeah. And what that means for Arthur is taking him at his word and dealing with him on his terms. Yeah. Also, I think that if I mean Franklin got lucky. But if Marcus had been in charge of Arthur's care, he would have gotten him out of it eventually. But he would have done it with a lot more care. There's the notion that, like, Marcus kind of brings it up. It's just sort of like, well, what harm is being done by letting him think this? It actually actually, um, reminds me of, you know, the older school versus newer school treatment of patients with dementia. Mm-hmm. Um, that the kind of old school is, you know, you have to have the big calendars on the wall and ground them in the current day and all of that, which is really very cruel. And the the newer school that's being adopted is that you you deal with them on their terms, that, you know, if they think that you're somebody else, then you're somebody else. You know, if they think that it's a different year, use that as an opportunity to learn about things that happened then and learn more of the family history, et cetera. Yeah. And yeah. you know, that Franklin is there with the like, well, you have to grant ground him in reality. And Marcus is there being like, well, let's, let's deal with him on, you know, in the reality that he's constructed and like work with that. Just following off the medical parallels, because I think that was a really salient point. Mm <laughs> hmm. This is, this is kind of a different tack, but there's a lot of episodes 
and a lot of reasons to hate Franklin. But <laughs> <laughs> this episode, for me personally, made me hate him more than any other because for reasons I cannot possibly fathom, I have a visceral reaction to people insisting they call you by things that you don't want to be called and you want to be called something else. Yeah. And then yeah. also, doctors not knowing fuck all about a subject, but still trying to control your care anyway. I don't know why I'm <laughs> super sensitive about that. Yeah. I, I don't know what it is. Yeah, <laughs> I could see that for sure. Franklin's just barging forward with his plan to just trash this poor man's brain is so outlandishly reckless. There is no conceivable world in which that is an appropriate measure for him to take. There's there's just none. And even in like, you know, 90s trauma psychology, I don't think that that would be thought of as a good idea. No, you don't. And you certainly don't let a trauma fucking surgeon do it. Franklin is not a psychologist. He's not a psychiatrist. He's not even a general practitioner. He's a trauma. He's like a trauma. I don't know, something like that. He trauma xenobiologist. Yeah. He's like an emergency yeah. person. He He's not there to like deal. He's at a minimum, whatever he is, he is not there to deal with this guy's very profound psychological problem. Mm -hmm. And it is only because Marcus is fucking pure and good that they find a way to break through when he reduces this poor man to a fucking vegetative state with his trauma, which is heartbreaking to see him just sitting there trapped in his own trauma, staring off into space. It's something we're not like, we're going to see in a couple episodes, Franklin, like somebody in MedLab actually standing up to Franklin. Yeah. When we get to Dr. Hobbs, I'm going to sing her praises. I love Dr. Hobbs. But I, yeah, this is, this is the, I'm, if, if Earth was a just world, which I, that, one of the, one of the things of Babylon 5 is that Earth is not a just world, but I, this is the thing I think is like, we, we joke a lot about like the, the, like creeping on his patients thing, but this is probably like, this is one of the most damaging things he does throughout the show. Yeah. And it, if there were still a malpractice board to report him to, he'd lose his license over this one. Early on in the episode, like when Franklin suggested, like he's on the right track of like, like he's like, yeah, you know, maybe this is a trauma response. He's like, just what could cause somebody to do that? And it's like, earth has been in like three wars in the last <laughs> 15 years. Like, like, Earth is like there was there was the there was the uh, the Dilgar War the Earth Midbari War and you know there's a fucking civil war a civil war yeah yeah it's like uh, it's like I wouldn't have been surprised if like that was a recent thing that was like it was caused by something as a civil war and some guy escaped and fell into this persona like I mean what we learn now is I think one of those things where you realize that it's the it's like that ironic tragedy yeah that. We see a lot of Babylon 5, like with uh, Jakar and Londo in season two. For a guy to, or for, for anyone to have, through what was a cultural misunderstanding, started a war that 
you know, that he sees to the end. Like, he volunteered to the Battle of the Line because it, I think we're we're told, either in this episode or previous one, that everybody who fought at the line was a volunteer. Yeah. Yeah. Because they knew, they knew it was a... Yeah. They knew that was it. He wanted to... Yeah. For, he, he was suicidal. He volunteered at the line because he he didn't... He, he, he mentions it in his thing, in his monologue, uh, when Franklin's breaking him uh, like a goddamn torturer, uh, that he didn't believe he should have survived the encounter with the Minbari. When he when they when they started the he didn't believe he should have survived the the Earth Minbari War so he volunteered for the Battle of the Line hoping to die, and then he survives that two hundred out of what twenty k two hundred k something like that yeah uh, yeah like one percent of them survived and yeah. which I'm reading in the notes here in all caps says that's bananas yeah <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> um, I mean there's only two hundred survivors so you know not really a lot of test cases but it's like i mean for everybody who survives the battle of the line i mean that was the end of a war that was for the minbaris and genocidal and yeah. i mean i'm surprised that there aren't more cases like that sinclair is certainly uh got some issues yeah, I mean, sinclair, yeah. sinclair survived and he's all and like he he also had the brain poked around yeah. in earth force should be and in fairness Almost every veteran of the Earthman Bari War we see is sh- shows some evidence of being traumatized by that war. But Earth Force should be absolutely fucking drowning in people with PTSD. Like, it should just be called PTSD Force. Because if you survived that kind of a war, I don't know how you would not be dealing with severe trauma. Yeah, I mean, I, like, from the main cast, like, I don't think Garibaldi or Ivanova... Garibaldi was in were, it. He was a... I believe he was a Gropo in it. Yeah, but he's also a sociopath, yeah. so... <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they probably are, but it's modeled off the, um... It's modeled off the U.S. military, so they don't care. Yeah. Let's move on to to, to, to better things. Yeah. Uh, or, or brighter things. Um, I have a little bit here. One of the things I use for just, like, looking at media is um, something that Lindsay Ellis referred to in an S in one of her video essays of that. There are sort of two ends you can look at, uh, or there's a spectrum you can look at for fiction of whether it is aspirational or subversive, whether a, a piece of media will conform and play into the tropes that is expected of that genre and what like people expect or whether it's subversive, whether it will try to play off those um, subvert them or do things in opposite to what people expect, which both have their both have their own uh, interesting parts about mm-hmm. them, and they've both got their merits and flaws. And I think that Babylon Five is like, for the most part, it's a subversive media or like subversive story where it's trying to do stuff that, um, like, it's not a show really about big damn heroes. That being said, yeah. Jakar coming on off the top rope to uh-huh. tag team with King Arthur is the there. best big damn hero shit. So yeah. good. And that sentence, uh, little... I want to just highlight that bananas sentence. Jakar coming off the top rope to tag team with King Arthur is so good. So good. A couple points to that. One, now I need to figure out the wrestling entrance music for all the characters. <laughs> Secondly... A little context for this moment for me. 
there are three episodes of Babylon 5 that made me cry. The first one was Talia leaving because we, we were losing her and there was heartfelt gay and that gets me right here. Yeah. The other was one that's coming up in a couple episodes. Y'all probably know what it is. And the third one was this one because I was just so happy. Yeah. <laughs> like as soon, this is the kind of ridiculous sci-fi bullshit I am into. And as soon as I saw King Arthur show up, I was like, oh, oh, I need this. I need him and Dakar and whoever else going around doing nightly shit. Because nightly shit is also one of my things. I don't care if it's historically accurate. Yeah. Um, so I was just like, oh my gosh, my boy. Jakar. Yeah. <laughs> he was so sincere. Jakar throwing himself into that fight is such a just pure joy moment and he's so happy afterwards i love everything about that scene afterwards and and michael york <laughs> and katsulas have just such good chemistry together like yeah they they click really well in their scenes yeah <laughs> uh my favorite scene in this that it does not involve jakar because obviously those all uh go first is the scene with delen <laughs> according to lurker's guide uh, she was told there was a scene they, they filmed where she is being told what the situation was, but he said it threw off the pacing. So they cut it, but he wanted to clarify that Delenn knows what's going on. She knows who this is. Aww. She knows what he did. She knows everything about the situation. So when she goes in, she's not just like, hi, random unconscious guy who wants to give me a sword i'll take a sword from you she knows this is not like a she knows that this is a an act of intentional forgiveness and what he's been what he's there for and it is a testament to mira furlan's unbelievable range in this show that she can deliver as effectively in a scene where she says fucking nothing as she can in the mm -hmm. scene where she's threatening all of Earth Force with her ships and being like, yeah. step off my fucking man, motherfuckers. Mm -hmm. She's completely wordlessly and just the solemnity uh, and the wordless communication that she has here with Michael York is so good. I love I've, that I've never scene. had any doubts watching this episode that like Delenn knew exactly what was up. Like, yeah, that's mm -hmm. incredibly clear without having the scene. Yeah. To explain yeah. that. Yeah. I, I really love that about this scene that she she knows who this is. She knows what he did. And there's I don't know what I call it. Is it a spoiler? It's a little eh. in one of the late in one of the movies that comes after the series, we learn more about her role in how the. Earthman Bari, like what Delenn was doing in the mm -hmm. Earthman Bari War. And we find out more. Uh, she was on one of those ships. Like, that's a little tiny spoiler. She was on one of those ships mm -hmm. that got fired yeah. on. So this is personal for her. And she she takes that sword and forgives him because Delenn's fucking great. And mm -hmm. it's such an intensely personal moment there. And I, I just love it. I love that scene. I don't think the sword ever comes back around. Uh, I wish it would. 
I like to think though that the uh eventually we see the seal of the CPK seal of defiance. I don't know, in their war room. Yeah, there's the the patch that we get on the, the on the shoulder that has on the new yeah, that has a sword on it. And eventually there's one on the wall somewhere, as I recall, sort of vaguely recall. And I sort of like to imagine that the sword on that seal is that sword. It's probably not. It's probably just painted on there. But I like to imagine that she puts it on the wall or something because it's such a yeah nice moment. And I think it should be sort of remembered that way. I really wish in general Arthur had stuck around. Like, I mean, I get why they didn't. But I don't know. I think he would have like legitimately added to the show. Yeah. <laughs> have him in there and like i've been trying to puzzle out like the thematic relevant relevance of arthuria to the show because it was like okay we had the episode about the holy grail and then we had this which without even mentioning the first episode followed up on a lot of the themes so i was like it's weird that it happened twice and i can't quite figure out why yeah well actually who here has watched the end of season three yeah okay is this a headphones yes moment? um okay so so on the double newbie episode justin has to take the headphones off Uh, activate gold channel one when when marcus asks who's morgana lefay it's anna sheridan right yeah oh yeah yep yep Mm -hmm. yep makes sense to me it's right there it's right there yeah that's so good mordred mort mordred morden yep Oh yeah, oh, that's yep. good. <laughs> it's all. It's Although, all I thought he was. I thought he was implying Mordred was. Uh, Londo. Oh, that's good too. You could. I could see that. That would also work. Yeah, but Morden Mordred work is so close, and the close association with Mordred and uh, Morgan Le Fay and Morden and Anna Sheridan. Yeah. Yeah, like I, th- yeah. I think that that's the clear parallel. Yeah, but yeah, it's it's definitely Anna Sheridan. Yeah. Okay, we had to have one of them. So that, yeah, there, there. Now we have another person on the conspiracy to kill me. <laughs> you, you know, yep. you know, we had to do it to them. So something that I was thinking of that like just popped into my head while we were doing the summary was I, I don't need like an episode on this, but I would have loved to see like a short story or a vignette. About Thomas Jordan, Jinxo from Grail, <laughs> and mm-hmm. Arthur like meeting. Oh yeah, because because that would be that that would have just been like I, I think that would have been a a cool thing of two characters who come from I would say thematically opposing episodes, <laughs> but like who have like who are both people who are sort of on the same journey. Yeah, yeah. they're both um, seekers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that that would have been something cool. And I think that's largely why Arthuriana is a thing that these episodes both go to. This show is very much interested in people who are looking for something greater. And Mm -hmm. the pursuit of that Arthur myth has always been a thing that draw like is in stories, something that draws the seekers. Mm-hmm. People who are looking for the Grail, people who are looking for Arthur, or people who are associated with Arthur—that's always had that association. This show is very interested in, ironically, not in the main cast, but is always has is very interested in the idea of 
those people that are looking for for something greater. And it's what next episode that we get um, our new set with the round table in it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 And, and the new the um, new CPK table of defiance. <laughs> well, this this um is also interesting how much track this episode is leaving in terms of like it's it's laying a lot of track for a lot of details. Like it explains the ranger pin. Um, it explains the uh, gun ports start of the war thing, which I don't think has been textually explained at this point. I thought it was in, in the season two opening where Sheridan first appears. I'm not sure it was though. Well, they, they say the, they the ship, uh, the, the Mimbari ship certainly does approach with the gun ports open. So we learn that tidbit that that's a sign of respect, but we don't yeah. specifically learn that that's what started okay. the war. Um, this is okay, where yeah, we learn that that's what started the war. And you know, that, there's there's so much detail that is being established here. It's fantastic. Not to circle back around, but Drew, just to clarify, you said that they don't really touch on seeking in the main cast. I feel like the, I mean, obviously Jakar aside, uh-huh. there isn't a, it's not as though they make that a, a central plot point aside from Jakar. Right. And the, the way that. Yeah, the way that they have it, like a constant stream of monster of the week guest stars coming right. in that the Minbari are like, oh, look, a seeker. Oh, look, a seeker. Oh, look, a seeker. They make it a thing that like it becomes a part of the show's vocabulary. Uh, and it mm-hmm. becomes a, a a theme that you recognize amongst the Minbari that this is something they value and recognize and it's not as though Babylon 5 becomes a religious center as a as a place aside again aside from Jakar's process. It's a political and a military place. That's true, but also I would say like a lot of the cast cast is like truly seeking something, like maybe not something as concrete, but I don't know, like Londo's kind of the dark mirror of Jakar's aspect there. Like, I'd argue he's a seeker too, but he's misguided, right? He's off the path. He's seeking something <laughs> yeah. bad. Um, yeah. And then, like, we, we touched on Sinclair, but Sheridan is, like, looking for, like, some sort of meaning and things, right? He's... He's got all his old quotes. I forget if we've gotten to the point where he said that he like, like as a casual thing, likes conspiracy theories. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. That's like, that's super early, but yeah, that, that's Garibaldi for all of his faults is somebody who in, who, who can't leave stuff unturned yeah. and uh, shared it. I was going to say Sinclair and whew, that would have been a thing I haven't done in a while. <laughs> But yeah, like Sher- Sheridan is somebody who is also like naturally curious. And- yeah, I mean, yes. But here's the thing. Sinclair, like Sinclair was a seeker. Sinclair was driven to explore and mm-hmm. like was dr- driven to find. He he was, yeah, he had, he was a seeker. He was looking for something and I don't think he knew what it was. Some purpose, right? Mm-hmm. Sheridan just wants a comfy chair. That's his energy <laughs> is Sheridan wants to win this war 
so he can like get a comfy chair and learn how to make spoo for Delenn. That is his central drive. And he wants to and he wants to meet cool yeah, aliens. And meet too. cool aliens. Like Sheridan's mm-hmm. not looking for anything complicated. And may and that's cool. Like I love that about Sheridan that like yeah. he's not, you know. And lo- like I can see the argument for Londo being like a d- the darks the dark mirror of of Jakar. I don't know that I agree necessarily, but I see I see the point you're mm-hmm. making there. But yeah, I just think that there's like I think what the point I was making is was really just that it's they make a big deal out of this whole idea of the seeker, but we don't mm-hmm. get one other than Jakar on the main cast. So I think it's I just think it's interesting that they it's such a prominent notion in the show uh, for it not to be featured as prominently in the main cast. I think it's, I think it's something that make that's a lot harder to have as a main cast because it, it takes so much effort, right. To show the entire arc. And I think if they tried to do that for more than one or maybe two characters, um, I think it would get very complicated very fast. Like that they have the bandwidth to show Jakar's journey. But I think that if we had more on the cast, I think it would be you know difficult to keep track of in some ways. You know, and, and it also makes you more vulnerable if one of those actors yeah. decides to leave. Mm-hmm. I do have a thing that I, I have. A, I have a, we'll call it a, a like, this is Let's a little like, we're going to put on some tinfoil here, uh, theories about Arthur. Interesting. Mm. Could huh. Arthur be a latent telepath? Interesting. This is this is mostly just like a comparatively the flashbacks we get and just the vividness of them and the abstraction that's there. Just like this, this is just like me like we're going into left field here because I see latent telepaths everywhere in the show. But like, could it be that possibly like? the trauma of that and was perhaps maybe even influenced by Min- the Minbari depths. Yeah. Or like that it was like a late activation, so to speak. It's possible. Mm-hmm. I think, I think that's something where generally earth force screens very carefully and only Ivanova's like mother, like that Ivanova's mother taught her how to oh, yeah. evade. Yeah. But the, I could see trauma tests. activating. Like if you were but yeah. not, latent like latent enough that it didn't even show up until trauma like kicked you into high gear i could see that and we we also have examples on the show of characters who have what might be considered to be psi powers but who aren't telepaths like maybe he has something that's more similar to what major barrett's character has going on like maybe he's closer to being a centauri seer than he is to a human yeah. telepath. You can definitely get the sense that visually they seem to be doing a lot of the same stuff with that, the sort of the black and the white. And then Delenn is inside his vision, so to speak. I like that. Mm-hmm. I like that idea. I have one I have one last point on this, which is that the music on the episode was really solid. Yeah, agreed. Um so my my husband commented while I was watching yeah. this in preparation for the recording that the Music sounded like The Witcher, <laughs> um, which I think is actually pretty apt um, that they went for something that was a mix of modern and medievalish sound. And it really worked very well. Agreed completely. 
Yeah, I love that. Particularly, there's a sort of flute and bell kind of phrase that they work into the music that I think works perfectly to sort of like key you in that like this is this is more than a science fiction episode that I really like. Yeah. Like a drum and drum and flute and bell kind of thing. I like it. But at the same time it's not just like B five goes to the Ren Fair. <laughs> I'd watch that episode for the record. It would be a good episode. I would watch I would yeah. watch like Ivanova like kicking ass at the axe throw and I would watch oh. Jakar eating that turkey leg. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Jakar with a tur- Jakar would go fucking ham at a Ren Fair. Jakar would love a Ren Fair. Have a turkey leg in one hand and he'd have a, a big old like horn of ale in the other. And he'd just be like ripping into like the fake old English and just hamming it up. He'd be go up to the Shakespeare stage. And him and Marcus would just be like, just going bananas with the like the Shakespearean actors. Shit! Now that I have the image of Ivanova throwing axes, I'm gonna just happily file that away. I, I know, right? I'm, I'm I'm far too lesbian for this. <laughs> uh, I I wasn't expecting them to refer back to the Jack the Ripper episode. Yeah, that's that's a... I I like. That episode was, I had mixed up feelings about that one. I haven't heard what your feelings are about it yet. Um, I believe that uh, my my summary on this was Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper is a um, middle-aged white guy, Peter Principal, who is the worst. (laughs) I get the sense that that's a very splitting episode. Uh, Uh, Yeah, I'll say that. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Yeah, I liked it, but I was also expecting it to just fade into the ether, but it didn't. It got mentioned as justification for this, which I appreciate just for the continuity and also because I think it was a thematically crucial episode of the show. Yeah, (laughs) I I think it is fun when you can like when like characters can reference like remember this absolutely batshit thing where like Jack the Ripper was like just like doing a job interview. Uh (laughs) and i like that marcus's reference to it is like you remember that crazy thing where jack the ripper showed up so maybe (laughs) don't dump on me for being like maybe it is king arthur (laughs) yeah so bite me i like that justin I, i see something in your notes talking about marcus's like little little bit of philosophy there oh yeah with the the line of wouldn't it be worse if if it were fair um and everything happened because we deserve it yeah i i the, the joke i made in that in that was a throw line as as someone with um chronic depression um that is just an internal monologue that recurs every once in a while it's a great line yeah i think it's sort of like an ethos of marcus as a character of like that he recognizes that the universe isn't fair and, and as such he knows that like people don't deserve the things that happen to the, like not everybody deserves the things that happen to them. And so he tries to do good. Yeah. And I, I think that's particularly exemplified in the fact that out of all of the main cast, Marcus is by far the one we see interacting the most with lurkers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
and just helping people, not even just the lurkers. Marcus wants to help people. He's yeah, a good he, boy. He, and part of that is because he doesn't like have a real job. Or like he, he's a ranger, <laughs> which is a very loose job description. Yeah. So it's like when he is not being a spy, whatever he is, like information yeah. broker. Yeah. He's just helping people. When yeah. I first encountered Marcus, I thought of him as Himbo Aragorn. Is that is that accurate? <laughs> is that accurate or is that redundant? <laughs> uh, no, I think that's I think that's accurate. I feel like Aragorn. I mean, they are called rangers for a reason. Yeah. Like. <laughs> yeah. No, I think Aragorn in most of it's it's hard to get a read on Aragorn's personality in in the text. So it's easy to want to put an adjective in front of Aragorn because without one, it's hard to get a read on what Aragorn is. Right. The kind of hero that Tolkien writes him as is this is very like not bland or generic, but stoic and sort of remote. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a result, you get like, okay, well, here you have Himbo Aragorn and I once made a character that was douchebag Aragorn. Like mm-hmm. it's an easy template to layer an adjective on and actually have something to work with. So on that note... <laughs> Just wrap the episode up on douchebag Aragorn. (laughs) (laughs) Josie, thank you so much for joining us on this. Just for the wrap up here, where can people find you on the internet? Well, first I can be found on the Magpies podcast at clevercorvids.net or Magpies on Spotify. I can also be found on Twitter at dragongirljosie. And my portfolio can be found at josie-art.com. I have commissioned Jesse for art before, and I will say that it is fantastic and uh, a great experience. So uh, go get her money. <laughs> Yay. Uh, all right, folks. Next time we are going to be covering uh, one episode because um, we are having a special guest star on. Uh, Scott Paladin of the Monster Mechanics Podcast is going to be joining us um, to talk about the Star Fury design as well as alien biology. We will only be covering one episode on that, which is episode 14, Ship of Tears. Until next time, be seeing you. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share-alike no derivatives license.